It is. And we didn't touch much on the whole design build aspect and the, the, the whole shaper generation now that you get of architects. And like the, so for me, I, I trust me, like if there was, if I didn't have family and didn't mind being on the road 10 months out of the year, hell yeah, I'd be building a golf course. What the hell else would I be doing? Like playing the sand or playing the dirt, like build these amazing things. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from the cavernous bunker beside the 18th green at the golf club at Stone Lake Hills, and this is episode 26. In this episode, Scott Lafine and I bounce around ideas on topics from a number of angles and with different aspects on the golf and golf course businesses. If you hadn't heard Scott's name before today, that's okay. He's carved out an untraditional role for himself in the golf course design and construction industries through his firm, Feature Golf Consulting. Where he's landed is as the guy behind the guy. As the design industry continues to evolve and architects self-sort among traditional firms that hand very precise plans to a construction manager and those designers raised from a shaper tradition and a more hands-on design-build model, Scott is quickly filling the back office void for those architects and contractors that prefer to spend as little time as possible in the office. A professional landscape architect who's journeyed from a job in golf to a beginning in traditional civil engineering work to begin to forge a path within the golf course industry, he's enjoyed backdoor access and hands-on experience to some of the most exciting projects of the last decade, including the original Sand Valley course in Wisconsin, and the newly announced Lido Course Recreation to be built adjacent to that same Sand Valley Resort. We trade thoughts on everything from golf club master plans to public links and the community golf concept, and a lot of other interesting stuff in between. There were significant warnings around Lexington and Cincinnati on the night we recorded, so a small warning, the sound quality is as good as I could engineer it, with a few unnatural breaks where... We simply lost audio quality. So I beg your patience in advance, but the good news is more banjo for you. Before we get to my talk with Scott, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is a member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows, which you can find at TalkingGolf.com, where you'll find some of the best golf podcasts produced anywhere. Be sure to check out the latest edition of On the Tee with Dr. P from Dr. Kelly Price, who this month discusses why women are so underrepresented in the golf professional space. The good doctor is armed with numbers and data, as well as the perspective of a dedicated golf tragic, and she might just make you think about this issue that, frankly, doesn't receive much daylight in modern golf discussions. You can find On the Tee with Dr. P wherever your podcast feeds are serviced. You can interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod, as well as on Instagram, and please, I encourage you to do so. Tell me you love me, tell you me you hate me, just be sure to tell me. Finally, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is sponsored by me, David Hill. In addition to playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes and also work with investors and businesses on commercial properties in central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. 
If you have a real estate question, if you want to know what a realtor can do for you, reach out to me and we can start a conversation. And with that, we'll get on to the show with Scott Lafine of Feature Golf Consulting. The pent-up demand, like, you know, golf was in such a unique space last year. It shut down just like everything else did briefly. And then people realized, well, it's kind of a walk in the park if you walk. So yeah. it, it, I actually played less golf last year because everybody else came to the course. Right. You know, I don't, my lifestyle, quote unquote lifestyle, I can't do a five hour round of golf. You know, I, I just yeah. don't. I, I just don't have that in the There's time budget. There's not too many that can. But everybody, I mean, it was even on 15-minute now, 15-minute tee times here locally were the thing. So pace of play actually moved pretty well. But I went from some semi-empty golf courses where I could kind of pick and choose on a lot of rounds, anything but league play, to, you know, I'm going out there trying to catch four or five or nine holes at magic hour before the sun sets. And right. that was a lot of my golf. Um I ask this, do you know or do you know of, are you familiar with Drew um, Rogers? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, Him and I had I spoke maybe maybe midway through last year, but yeah, okay. he, uh, he's a alumnus of uh, my program from UK. Right, right. Uh, I've got, I see your degree up there on the bookshelf. Thanks for, for the juxtaposition in there. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Because I've got three of those <laughs> things, so I, I'm all pro cats. Um my wife's got one to boot, but I, same here. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of had the thought of was were they looking? Was he looking at 2020 as a chance, or were clubs taking a chance to like jump on the deferred maintenance train? I spoke to him maybe around March or April, and then all of a sudden their tee sheets filled up, and so that had to have. I, I can't imagine they wanted to to kill the golden goose in the moment. So what kind of what has your last year? looked like and felt like inside the the golf design construction yeah it's um it's from from my perspective it's been a lot of all right let's let's get this season you know let's milk this thing for all we can let's maybe some of the clubs that have a little bit more cash flow they'll find the problems with irrigation systems or drainage or uh you know kind of the really surface stuff that can be addressed and you know paint that pretty picture for uh, all the golfers out there. Not not necessarily a full overhaul, but I think a lot of your what's going to come of 2020, in my opinion, is probably a lot of master planning, maybe a lot of um, extra thought into you know what what direction do we want the course to go? Because it's it's always going to be you know keeping up with the Joneses down the street. Well, if they're putting you know redoing everything over there. You know, what are we going to do to keep up and keep uh, the golfers coming back here to, you know, hold our own, uh, which is which is always interesting to me, um, that whole aspect of it. Let me stop you there. This is something I've always wanted to know and, and maybe some listeners, too, because a lot of architects and designers talk about master plans. And that's a way that's a revenue generator for you guys when there's not a lot going what is a master plan? Is that the ubiquitous 25-year plan that you present a course that they're going to redo every five years? What to you, to a, a professional landscape architect, to a, a golf course designer and builder, what is a master plan, short version or good version? So, short, good version. A master plan is keeping the course on track with their vision of it could be 10, 15, 25, 50 years. Okay. It's basically – 
making sure that every time you turn over a board or a committee, your goals are staying the same. So even if you have a guy who is just hell-bent on, we'll say, the uh, the term of the week, lengthening the course here, you know, we want to lengthen the course. Well, our master plan doesn't say it, so, you know, what? this isn't what we had planned. Let's let's pump the brakes here and refer back to this. And, and it, it is, a, it's a, you know, it can be a hole-by-hole hole or a full sheet, however you want to look at it, whatever. But uh, usually it's a, uh, a document or a set of documents that show... Yeah, it can be anything from we want to redo the tees. We know that's going to be uh, a heavy expense, so let's look at our financials in three years, see where we're at, see if we can afford it. If not, we'll push it to the next phase. So it's it's a lot of coinciding of the financial aspects of the club or the course. You know, it could be a, a public course that has to go through a you know like Cincinnati's the uh, Parks uh, and Recreation Commission (CRC) Cincinnati Recreation Commission. Yeah, it's it'll have to go through that whole process, which depending on, you know, how badly the needs are to get things updated, it's uh, it can be a slow or a quick process, mostly on the slower side. But it's a good chance for the club and an architect to what is going to be the best options for the club. So it's going to be what's going to keep making this club money. And that's that's really the brass tacks of it. See, coming from my world, from real estate, I'm. I do a lot of political work within the real estate, not as a paid consultant or anything, but just on our local committee. Mm-hmm. And you know, cities in Kentucky counties are supposed to have a comprehensive plan, and they're supposed to look at it every five years. And the you could put an entire fleet in the disconnect between each five-year plan if you're not careful. You, know, <laughs> you have you have a new a new mayor, new council people. Um, yeah. You know, change in, in population dynamics, um, especially around here in Lexington. You see the, the growth not so much in Lexington but in surrounding counties and the way those county dynamics are changing. So it's just hearing master plan uh, it sounds – I guess you're going to have enough tenure, especially at clubs where you have some longevity of membership that maybe it makes it past one board cycle. right. You know, some of the old architecture books talk about the the danger of the Greens Committee, and you get a new chairman every year, and all of a sudden you've got a new vision and a new pet peeve. Uh, oh, yeah. So do they survive? In your experience, and this is just you and me talking, nobody's going to hear this, do clubs pay attention to them? Or, or golf courses, I, I, not just private clubs? Yeah, I, um, from my experience, yes. Okay. It's the ones that don't have the master plans that and not all honestly not a lot of them do because one it costs money and nothing gets theoretically just because you have a master plan doesn't mean the course is getting better you still have to implement all the changes i mean just like the comp plan like all right we've got you know this area here is zoned you know industrial three or whatever it is so we know that just because it's zoned that way there's still houses there right and yeah, the city's going to try to buy those out and shift it over to I three or whatever it is that you know we're trying to change it to. So it's you know the the whole master planning just in general, not even just golf courses. It's um, it's a great way to just get everybody's thoughts onto paper. It's a good process to go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get get all the public input or you know membership input and kind of understand. What needs to be addressed first? Obviously, you know, if there's people bitching and moaning about Lord knows what, the snack shack or something like that, it's like, all right, you know, we got to figure that in. But 
I am a big institutional memory person. The older I get, the more important I realize that is. And so it's almost like I feel like a master. What you're describing as a master plan almost sounds like key person insurance. It's like, okay, if you've got a master plan, if you know where you've been, then you can figure out where to go. If you've forgotten why and you, you hear I hear architects or people in that space talk about all the times like well they they planted those trees because why somebody got free trees in the 60s and everybody then so what is it somebody's yeah. sacred tree is it really you know those sorts of things if you know why we've got a course here i don't know if you, uh, it would have been public while you were in lexington uh picadome gay brewer junior course at picadome absolutely that was my uh, stomping ground while i was in the while i went to school there that's that's home course one for me because I live about a mile from it now. <laughs> Between oh, that nice. and current, yeah, oh yeah, but you know the city bought that essentially to put that sewage pump station in there, stormwater sewer that's behind mm-hmm. behind three T, okay? Because there used to be, you know, that little brick building. I don't know if you remember it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So across the street where that newish neighborhood was, that used to be a par three golf course. Okay, so it, it really? Oh yes, that's why those that's houses funny. are twenty years old, and all the rest of them are seventy years old around there. That was a little a little par three. So you know what it did? It didn't have rooftops or asphalts, so it ate a lot of water, just like Picadome did. And St. Joe used to be uh, a lot smaller. It didn't have an office park on that side of the street, and UK didn't have as much asphalt, which came down through the stormwater over there. So all of a sudden, you've got all that water converging. So I worry, as you know, in times of city finance, they always want to look at the uh, the golf courses, which lose money. Of course, some of that's funny accounting, um, but, <laughs> but some you know the way they capitalize things. Hey, I'm a finance and econ nerd, so I look at the books. And what are you talking about? Anyway, oh yeah, a different rant. But you know that is a <laughs> that is a sin eater for our rooftops and asphalt. All the water comes to the golf course, and so they have that station there to handle it. And if somebody ever wants to just turn that or, or repurpose that green space, you're looking at an environmental disaster. And, and I can oh, tell yeah. you, they don't, they don't have a ton of chemicals on that golf course. It's Bermuda grass no, and clover. <laughs> exactly. I, so it hasn't changed in 10 years. I don't know that they punched uh, the green since, you've been, since you left. <laughs> I always remember, obviously, the shared green there was – Pretty cool. Honestly, that was yeah. probably one of my first times seeing a shared green. Yeah. Eight and ten. In my life. Is it – I'm trying to think. So the – it might be 18 where it's got that, that huge cutout almost like a ditch before the green or is that nine? Yeah, that's that's 18 and they actually cleaned that out and expanded that a little bit. They, they Really? Some, okay. They, they put some rock in there because they've – there's water coming when they they've got the whole upstream all the way to UK's campus by the arboretum. They've got a stormwater runoff mm-hmm. project, and that's where that actually drains to. If you look at the the hydrolog the, okay. the water maps, um, yeah, runs under that that Seven Parks neighborhood and under St. Joe and comes out. Yep. So so that still floods a little okay. bit, but there's a sinkhole somewhere in that big wow. cavern there next to between 10T and 18 Green. So that water goes yeah. in there and yep. it pools and then it disappears, but slowly. Okay, I definitely lost a couple balls uh, over my time there in that thing. It's, but, it, I mean, it's just I was saying a, a, even remembering just along uh, uh, there. So the 
landscape architecture department was in Good Barn, which is okay. just west of the stadium. Actually, they're moving this next year, I think, or soon. But so a lot of times, I think two or three of the years, I I have to cross uh, Nicholasville to get to the barn. And if you got a heavy rain, the stuff was moving quick. Yeah. Like yeah. some of those, some of those ditches and like, you're like, Oh my God. When they paved the orange lot. So that whole lot next to good barn is all asphalt now. So it's not even soaking up anything because it was grass yeah. until five yeah. or six years ago. Right. Uh, but, but they've up by Greg page and up by the Arboretum, they've done a whole downstream upstream project. So that's changing a little bit, gotcha. but the point being that arc, that institutional memory, you know, there are I'm sure half of the council people weren't there when they bought that thing in may not have even lived in the city when they bought that in the late nineties, early two thousands from Campbell House. And so they you know, how much turnovers they're gonna be in the in the environmental management department before anybody remembers why they did that. So right. a master plan sounds like a, a great insurance policy against that kind of like repeating the same mistake over and over again. Yes, I would. It, it You're going to have some upfront costs and that, it, that will never change, but how well it's done can save you so much in the long run. So much. I mean, a lot, you know, there's not a whole lot of new courses getting built nowadays, but, you know, you start fresh, and you're like, "All right, hopefully we won't have to do any of this stuff." But uh, you know, there's there's still changes that wind up coming to these new courses. But you, you know, through stuff like that, you wind up learning, and you can use that on renovations or restorations that um, you know prove beneficial for pretty much any club that you look at. It's, again, institutional knowledge. Once you have it, it's like little fit and. Sounds like you've got a wide breadth of experience in this. Tell people a little bit. You're you have your own operation now, feature consulting, right? Yep. yep. Um, design, construction, some master planning uh, is what is advertised on your website. Talk to me a little bit about how how you view the work in the golf course industry as opposed to maybe how an engineer is going to approach it or how a somebody that maybe came up on equipment, a shaper that became designer. Um, I don't want to, I don't want you to try to put people into silos, but I'm always interested in people's backgrounds and how that affects kind of how they see the design process, uh, you know, art, the kind of the pure artists versus on one end of the spectrum and the pure engineer on the other side and most golf courses and design where he's somewhere in the middle of there. Right. And a landscape yeah. architect is is it? I think you guys have a unique perspective as well. Yeah, it's a it is a unique look at the golf world through a landscape architect's eyes, and it's you know you don't have to be a landscape architect to be where I am or in this business. And I mean, full disclosure, I'm 32. I don't know anything compared to a lot of these guys in the industry. I am low man on the totem pole here, but I've been around enough to understand, you know, what I need to do to be successful in this industry and what the industry perceives as successful. So uh, I guess kind of going back a little bit, my my background, obviously, uh, from the two of us talking is I got my bachelor's in landscape architecture from University of Kentucky. Um, I while I was at UK, I interned with uh, Oliphant Construction, who's a golf course contractor up in 
Wisconsin. So I worked actually on Lawsonia for a summer, which was a introduction to Langford and Moreau. I was going to say, had you seen anything like that? I'm hoping we're going to Sand Valley this year for our trip, and I'm hoping yes. I'm going to drive it. Uh, 99% sure I'm going to drive up there specifically almost to go see the links at Lawsonia. Had you seen anything like that before that internship? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, it was so I, I agreed to this job. So actually, I think Drew Rogers pointed me in their direction while I was still in school. He said, hey, contact these guys. I've done work with them. See if they have any positions available. Like this was me just trying to get my foot in the door. Like I am really enamored by landscape architecture. I think I can combine the two and maybe have some fun with it. And so I'm like, all right, you know, you start, you just dive into the books and everything. Anyway, so I get hooked up with Oliphant. They say, do you want to come up and work for the summer up at Lost Sunny? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Sounds fun. It's a good, uh, probably do a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of office work. Not too far from your home, your Chicago bread. Cor correct. Yeah. So it was, I grew up in the Northwest burbs of Chicago uh, lived there until I went to school. And then obviously, uh, um, so made my way up to Wisconsin, which was, I think green lakes, maybe three hours from my house. So it was a net brainer. I was like, yeah, of course I'll do it. It's good. Step into the golf industry. There's, there's this ridge that you go up to, to get to the clubhouse. And once you cross over that ridge, like it just opens up, the links opens up in front of you and you can see the whole back nine, and it's a little, you can see a sliver of green lake in the background. It's just like, yeah, I made the right decision. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously being up there, you learn about Langford Moreau's style. You know, you, it's, it's so different than what I grew up on. And that was, you know, even growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, it's like, there's some world-class golf there, but, you know. It's not I accessible never, to everybody. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so um, I did that. Uh, finished out the summer, went back to classes for my last year. The LA program at UK is a five-year program. Wind up going back with Oliphant full-time up in Madison. Little did I know there was a project called Sand Valley that was about to be starting, uh, and Oliphant was to be the contractor. I mean, my boss, Craig Halton, was the one who found the land. Um, so we would go up, and I think one of my first times up there, we – it was me and a, another guy maybe. And we were, uh, clearing center lines for Mike Kaiser to come walk the property or to, to start come selling the property. So I'm out here in the middle of winter. Like, and it, mind you, it is, there is nothing, there's nothing out there now besides the golf course. There was nothing out there. It was <laughs> look like, at the Google map image. It doesn't have the course it, on there. Right. Exactly. So it's, you know, we're, I'm, I've got this map, like trying to figure out, you know, walk these center lines and tag them off and everything. And they'll have a dozer come behind me and clear them out. And it's starting to get dark. My phone's dying. And sorry, I'm going way off tangent here. Uh, in my first experience at Sand Valley, I thought I was going to wind up dying in the Middle East <laughs> pine plantations because my phone's about to die. I've got no contact with anybody. I have no clue where I am. I've got a map. Like everything looks the same. All those streets are north south. So that was like kind of like, all right, I can at least find my way back to something. Did, didn't they're all on a grid grid streets? Didn't your mother tell you to never leave the house without a coat? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did, but Wisconsin winters, you need like. 
a, a good coat can only last you for a couple hours. <laughs> so you came, so you came into it. You were from the construction side, basically. It, it yeah. Is, so it, how exactly. you viewed the golf, your entree into golf. Yes, absolutely. So it was uh, um, more so from the construction side first off, and the construction side was great for me because it was you understood how things got built. And once you understand how things get built, you start to see things differently. The design side becomes a little bit different. And that was a really good experience for me. And then um, all the while, I'm dating my wife, who is now in Chicago, my now wife, then girlfriend, who was working in Chicago for uh, another landscape architecture firm. And it was like, all right, now's the time. It's like, are we going to keep this up? And, you know, kind of pretty typical stuff after coming out of a college relationship and you know we liked each other enough so i, I wound up leaving oliphant um on good terms um and moving down to chicago and working for a, a architecture and engineering firm um uh, in their land development department it uh it, it was good because these uh the people i worked with were really disciplined with the technical side of development which i needed because mm-hmm. coming out of college and working for a golf construction company you didn't really um you knew what you needed to know and not much more than that so gaining experience with people who were very skilled at the engineering side of development was great for me and i I enjoyed doing it i enjoyed learning from them um so kind of honing my capabilities with grading and drainage which they teach you in school and again you think you are good enough to go practice it in the real world, but you get out there and do it, do it around some engineers and you'll truly understand that you have no idea compared to these other people. Uh, and in my, and in golf, we have a similarity in my business, just like in the golf business, water is the root of all evil. People think it's money. Money is not the root of all evil. Money fixes some problems, but it's water. If you don't control where the water goes, your product is, has a shelf life and a very short one. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very true. So working with other landscape architects, working with, again, really phenomenal surveyors and engineers was more than I could ask for. Looking back now, really grasping how big of a deal that was to be around those people every day. The the difference between working in the golf world and working in the, we'll call it the civil engineering world, is, you know, your grading just may not look great or the angle might not be good for, you know, the backside of a green. You don't want it coming off too steep. You know, you move to the civil engineering side of it and you've got lawsuits coming if you screw up. If, so that's that's kind of the, the long and short of it. Um, granted, in the golf world, too, you, there's chances to uh, – <laughs> Well, that – For some that, lawsuits, too, but I won't get into that. Well, no, but that leads me into something I wanted to, to talk to you about. Necessarily, not necessarily lawsuits per se, but <laughs> um, you know, there aren't a lot of – real estate's not selling housing, or at least it, we're on pause for that, especially in metro areas. The, the, the land prices are just too high. So oh, yeah. kind of from your seat, what – I think golf has some good opportunities. There's, you know, but the, I think even in the renovation remodel space, which I think is going to be a lot of the work for this generation. I mean, your generation, you may get to work on some new 18 hole courses, but I think those 
those chances are going to be pretty rare, at least stateside in the, right. the near term. Right. Um, and it, it, I don't have a strong position on the ball rollback debate. I actually probably watch less professional golf now than I did three years ago. I, I've got two kids, and I like to play as much as I can. Um, but what are you seeing, you know, of things in the pipeline and what clients are telling people when they're interviewing? What are you seeing kind of in that renovation space? Is the keeping up with the – is the arms race continuing to go forward? Has there been any reckoning that, you know what, that we, we just can't – we can't afford to go further back? Um, you know, Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in the business. I think that is – I was talking to some buddies about that this week. Um, what I'm seeing is that is such a small portion of the overall golf world that you and I probably won't even be discussing it on our day-to-day golf conversations. It's these courses that are the professional length or championship length um, – you know, they may have conversations about it. I don't think that without getting too in depth in it and, you know, overheated on it, I, I don't think the average golfer or somebody like you and I who are very much into the game, but, you know, we're not playing for money. We're not trying to go professional. I don't think it's going to affect us too much. I don't the the courses themselves. I haven't heard anything about keeping up with the tour standards or whatever that is. I actually think the trend now, from what I've seen, is really reassuring in the golf community. It's hey, we've got a property that is from the 1920s or the 1930s, and we understand that over the past hundred years this property is buried greatly from the, the initial plans that were done by a really, really talented individual. Uh, let's try to steer it back that way. And a lot of it, you know, there's for, for my opinion or in my opinion, I think a lot of these projects are in the long run going to be good for the game. I think there was a period in time. And again, I'm just a young gun here. Uh, so I didn't live through the seventies, eighties, nineties, but I think now there's this really good trend. I don't even want to call it a trend. It's a, it's a good practice to get these courses back to kind of the state that they were initially thought of being. It's If you think of it as these architects who came in with a blank slate, they had to create all of these contours, all of these features and, you know, what, what to start from then a blank slate. And, you know, it, it evolves over the years and now we're trying to go back and, nip and tuck here and nip and tuck there. And, you know, we can afford this much this year and well, we can leave that. And then again, you get to the master planning thing and it's just, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of keeping up with the Joneses per se, but in my opinion, a lot of it is a water related. It's always about drainage. You got to keep the course dry. Um, that is probably the biggest, either that or the irrigation systems, gone kaput and that needs to get replaced but well and those have what a, a couple of decades shelf life if you're yeah, lucky. probably tw- 20 30 yeah you know the what you're describing gives me hope you know maybe maybe there will be a great divide between just like there is in the playing side between the guys that play for money and everybody else 
maybe there'll be a little bit of divide. There'll be the TPCs and the the guys that are competing for the PGA Championship and U.S. Open rotas, and then everybody else. Yeah. Um, be, you know that would be that's almost an ideal world where you know average Joes can go play. You know, if people that are super talented want to play the tips, they want to go find a seven thousand or plus golf course. Okay, great. They they can go find it if they know what they're doing. Um, but right. for everybody else, uh, you mentioned you know it's all about the drainage and the water. You know, we're fortunate here in Kentucky and in Ohio. You've got a we've got big rivers everywhere. We've got all the yeah. water we can yeah. need. You cross yes. the Mississippi, that's not true. You get across the you know you get out west. I know you've worked out west a little bit. Uh, you know, riparian rights are everything out there. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, just the absolute <laughs> driver. So, you know, I, I had one of my recent episodes. I, I talked to one of the guys, Mike McCartan from National Links Trust. He worked. Yes. Uh, he was in in Tom Doak's shop for a while, and you know, I asked him, you know, can can golf get smaller? And maybe that was the wrong question. Maybe can golf kind of stay small? But it, it was. That gave me hope. What you're saying and, and kind of what melded what his answer was that that gives me hope that maybe you know we have two we've got a couple of championship length courses. I didn't know it until this year. Uh, Kearney Hill, you'll remember out you know the which was built for a senior tour event. It was built in '89 as a 6,800 yard course. Like they had to to call PB die and like hey they couldn't afford to bring him back. They're like hey here's what we're thinking about. Is this cool? Um, to get it up to where it can host U.S. Open qualifiers and yeah. you know, Kentucky Opens and things like that. But yeah. there's no room for Picadome or Tate's Creek or any of the right. city courses in Louisville to expand. So if they right. can, if you, if good smart architects can uh, keep the infrastructure well and and think about maybe undoing some of the some of that terrible stuff, some of the trees, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe those courses can be. Re- can stick around for another couple of decades. Um, you know, that's, uh, that seems to be the, uh, the common theme. A lot of courses going forward. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's going back on the, uh, the people who got the free trees and planted them up every fairway. <laughs> so it's, and, and to kind of on that point, it's, you know, I, I said a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of courses that were done by these golden age architects in the twenties and thirties. That was just a very small example a lot of the work that's happening now is strictly renovation from just either getting worn down or outdated or, you know, maybe this, we just need to breathe new life into the club. And that's a lot of courses now that, especially after 2020, they're saying, hey, okay, we saw what we can do with an increased number of rounds. How can we sustain that? Okay, well, let's look at, you know, hiring an architect to look at it. But it's, I think it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of the driver for our industry right now is just uh, it, it comes from, you know, quote unquote, sprucing the place up and, and dealing with these issues that may or may not have been seen prior to the huge traffic that they saw this year. Yeah, that, that 2020 definitely would have been a unique stressor for a lot of these courses. And, you know, you've got just the volume of courses that you've got coming up with significant anniversaries, things built from in my lifetime, you know, things built in the last 40 years that are, you know, you've just You've got deferred maintenance everywhere. You've got old systems. It'll be interesting to see whether it's a lot of sprucing up and putting lipstick on that pig or right. if there's significant work. You know, if if clubs will, will bite the bullet and say, okay, we, not only do we have a problem, but, you know, this could could this be more interesting? 
you know, without I know I know that's an expensive thing, but there have been some here locally. We've got some really good examples of that. Um, you know, in Louisville, I know uh, Big Spring, one of my favorite courses. Reese Jones went in, and they give him credit for a total renovation. And you know, it's fabulous. They kept some trees, they kept some character, um, but it's it's not boring. You know, it's a course I would love. You know, that's that's an invite I'll never pass up. People think that yeah. Valhalla is the the golden you know, the golden child of Kentucky. And it is. Right. So it's a very, very interesting, can be a very fun or very hard course. But there are some other clubs that just have really interesting routings and, and a lot of potential. Um, you know, there are also some that, you know, a lot of the housing development. I'm interested to see how that evolves with so many housing development courses because you've got a green space where – do members and, and residents resist major overhauls because it will mess up their green space? You know, I'm just curious to see how that plays out. So I'll be checking back yeah. think, with you periodically to see um, how that amenity changes maybe. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's funny. My wife uh, works for a developer here in Cincinnati, and uh, they have recently done – actually, a handful of their – Developments have had courses in them, and um, it, over the past, but these were developments that were started maybe ten years ago, eight years ago. So a little new. I don't, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and since then, I don't think there's any. Obviously, nobody's building these golf course communities like they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like like you were saying, these thirty, forty year old courses. Now. Signature courses. Yes. The signature courses are all coming up on – I'm kind of off track here a little bit, but the you know, there's such good opportunity to – you know, th- these courses may have gotten off track from what they used to be. You know, day one they open. They are the shining gem of the area. They mm-hmm. are, you know, selling houses left and right, okay? And little by little, you know – our HOA changes, the mm-hmm. course changes hands. You start to lose a little bit of maintenance. You start to do things on the cheap. Now we're looking at, yes, that is that is the time to say, all right, is this worth looking at doing a master plan for? Is this looking at worth looking at a long-term goal, bringing in an architect, bringing in a contractor, either you know putting the lipstick on or, you know what, let's just rethink this thing. Maybe there's only nine holes here. Right. Maybe we crammed 18 in really foolishly, but that's what was going to sell homes. Yeah. Was the 18 holes signature course. So it's kind of touching on that, that the nine hole, 12 hole, three hole, six hole loop thing is so great. And I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of it. Um, par three courses that like all these things that are just, I mean, you said it earlier, like nobody's got time for a five hour round unless you're going to mid pines or Pinehurst on a right. uh, trip. But like, I mean, man, that Avon Fields down the street for me here in Cincinnati. That's my quick go-to. It's six-minute drive. I can walk nine in about an hour fifteen, and usually if I catch it at a good time, you know, do sweep in on a weekend or you know, kind of late afternoon if I got nothing going on on a weekday, which that hasn't been the case in a year, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> uh, fitting into people's schedule, and that's a big discussion for golf, and it's I. It's interesting now kind of how we're seeing the trend in 
golf courses. So I do a, a lot of consulting with Andy Staples. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. No, that you, you did your own segue. It, you know, he's had this community golf concept that's been his sales pitch for for some time. With yeah. Uh, so yeah. tell me kind of about your exposure with that. I wanted to ask about that. So. Um, so I, I actually haven't worked too much on the community links stuff with him. I, I'm well aware of, of his past project in Hobbs, New Mexico. That's was a phenomenal success. And, um, we're kind of working on like revamping it and getting it, um, to a point where it's, you know, easy to translate from town to town, from job to job. So it's kind of, it's, we're pulling back before we start to push forward with it, okay. if that makes sense. So, kind of, it, it's a it's a phenomenal concept. He is very proud of it and is excited to get this thing back to getting rolled out. And um, let me ask you this on the the project in New Mexico and the just the the model. Is it a redevelopment model or a new course model? That is a good question. I believe it's a redevelopment, if I'm not mistaken. I would have to double check on that. Don't quote okay. me on that. <laughs> no, no, that, that's it, I, that's what I was getting. Is that it, as you're working on the concept, it is something that's going to. You're talking about going from town to town. Is it a yeah, kind of a redevelopment, remodel plan? Please come down and take either Tate's Creek or Lakeside. <laughs> turn it into a nine-hole course. Put a driving range on it. God, make I a, would love a little to par three. Tate's Creek. I'd love to do Takes Creek. You've got that L-shaped property, so you can find nine – I can find nine good holes there. Or we could yeah. just build nine off the front. And you know, and then you've got how a course – how a daily fee course makes money without a driving range is one of the great mysteries. I don't know that it can in – at least not in a market like this where until recently we were definitely oversaturated with golf. But yeah, yeah a, find a nine-hole – uh, you've got, you know, that whole concept. You've got a, a putting green. Get them young on the putting green. Get them to the short course. Get them to the nine-hole big course and have a driving range with lights so that you can make some money. I mean, how 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 perfect is it? How, like, just you've even got room to to carve some of it off for green space, for park, disc golf, whatever. You can yeah. you can you can give some back up there. You know, you could slap some prairie restoration in there or uh, wetland restoration and maybe get a little bit of dough from the community. So, Start funding the project, man. The, the first time I heard Andy interviewed about that, I just – I've had that idea. It's like, oh, please, God, please come to Lexington. The city will never spend that money. Maybe I win the lottery and buy it from them with a, with a conservation easement, and, but with an exception for golf courses. That's right. that's where my mind went. There you go. I um, see what you're thinking. Um, so, so how crazy – so I just gave the wacky idea. Tell people what the real version of kind of that concept is. So, the, I mean, the, the, you see it everywhere. Um, not everywhere. So you see it in something like a, the Winter Park 9 that, that Keith Redmond and Riley Johns did down in Florida. I mean, like, how big, big of a success was that? You take this phenomenal green space in the middle of town. And not a big one. No, it really isn't. It's a, I haven't been, but I've read a lot and seen some videos on it, and it does look like a tight piece of property that uh, they absolutely put their heart and soul into, and it has been a, a huge success for them and for the community, which is huge. And that's, you know... As an architect, you are your client is 
that community. So you are trying to give them the best product that you can do that you can put forward. And a lot of that doesn't have to revolve around, you know, the, the golf course itself, the quote unquote golf course, whether it's the nine or 18, but you know, you start thinking about more holistically, you know, your, your practice facilities, what, how your clubhouse is going to interact with the practice facilities and the golf course. And, Yes, you have to give them a good golf course product. Obviously, you wouldn't give them a bad golf course product, but like it, it's it's becoming so much more in my eyes. What so you know, I'm in my early 30s. I've got kind of my my generation right now is typically married and maybe having their first or second kid, mm-hmm. and like just we in my eyes, if I wasn't you know glued to my desk or 24 seven. It's like, I just want to get out and play. And if I can take my kids and wife with me, there's no place I'd rather be than having a beer, having dinner on the back patio of a clubhouse overlooking a Mondo practice green right. where people are having putting competitions. I can see, you know, a couple buddies that are coming in on 18 or nine or whatever. And like the wife or the husband will never turn you down for golf. If you take the kids with you. It's like the ultimate pass. I, I, I did that this summer. This was the first year that my boys came to the big course with me. And the little guy, when he was two, he'd never seen mown green space the size of a, <laughs> of a fairway that he could just go walk. So we're just walking you know, around greens and fairways around Picadome, and he's kind of in awe. You know, the, yeah. the, the my big guy was, was working on his swing and having fun looking at groundhogs and birds and oh, yeah. whatnot. Because it's golden hour and it's the perfect time. But yeah, the uh, my my wife never said no. Don't you can't go to the golf course with them right now. Not going to happen. That's a that's a mythical conversation. So, yes, that that community friendly place where you can go get a few holes um, on a short time budget, grab a snack, socialize. Yeah, really make it a, a community place. Absolutely, and it's uh, it's something that not a lot of people right now are super keen on doing but i think that's going to wind up becoming the trend when they realize you know maybe we don't need to spend seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars on clubhouse upgrades this year why don't we upgrade the patio why don't we upgrade practice facilities or putting green maybe slap some lights on it maybe we do a little par three putting course you know just stuff like that is uh it seems to make sense and is that going to take a generational change though do you think i hope not I hope not, but I mean, think about how long it took to get a nine-hole round to be recorded as an actual round that oh, counted yeah. towards your handicap. Look how long that took. Yeah. Oh, that. So <laughs> I'd love to say yes. Golf is uh, on the cutting edge of doing things. You know, it, it might take a little teeth pulling, but there are good precedents out there, and I've been involved with a couple projects that have kind of started pushing towards that direction and it's exciting it's uh you know from my standpoint specifically it's you're not only doing course architecture you also get to have fun with the landscape architecture on it so um i think the industry is trending in a good direction to wrap that up to wrap that uh thought up um well let me piggyback on this is is that a model that can save urban golf in this country? That's a great question. 
That is a phenomenal uh, question. Golf courses, for those that may not be aware, a golf course is never going to be the highest, best use of land. And my my friend Adrian Logue from the Good Good Golf Podcast, I don't know if you listen to the Australian guys, he raised, he kind of accidentally triggered me the other day, raised the, the thought of, because their coastal properties in Australia, in Sydney and Melbourne, are mm-hmm. very, it's analogous to property on the coast, San Francisco, LA, San Diego, even the East Coast, Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, where you have this huge inflationary pressure on land due to housing demand. People are migrating to the cities. This is a long-term trend that's not slowing down. So inside the Beltway, inside the Outer Loop, inside Manowar Boulevard, you you cannot afford to build a new course. Out in the country, out in the suburbs, out in the outlying areas, in the Outer Ring, sure, you can still get land cheap enough maybe to make that happen. But you know, if city budgets are under pressure because 2020 sapped all their revenue, you know there are discussions right now about what assets can we sell, and a a big, oh, yeah. a big green space that may that is maybe revenue neutral at best has got to be just lighting up people's agenda sheets. It's almost going to take an my thought is it's almost going to take emotion and nostalgia and a really good plan or a really good model like you're talking about to make it a not a golf asset but a community asset all right and i'm just curious if you're seeing or hearing any rumblings on that front or um, just your thoughts on urban golf uh, because that's that is something that is different than destination golf and is different than you know high-end country club or right housing development golf exactly and it is it's uh I mean, between you and me, it's kind of the urban golf near and dear to my heart right now because that's where I play. That's, right, me that's too. My, exactly. So it's the trend I think should be with these urban courses. It's they, they need to. This is kind of a loaded question and a loaded answer, but I'm going to try to do my best here. I, I think the best way to go about doing it, in my opinion, and again, I can't say this enough. I haven't worked on these things forever. There are guys out there, the Mike McCartans of the world, who are experts on this but from my perspective that just from being the almost the end user from being the the retail golfer here you're starting to generation out or you're starting to age out the generation that it's always been cool to go off on a sunday morning and six hours go by and you come back to the house like i don't know too many people anymore that a have that time or B want to spend that time uh, at the golf course. And, you know, like that's a, I just think that with these urban courses, there's such a potential, not only with food and beverage, but with, you know, teaching stuff, you, you could have lessons for, you know, they could be subsized or whatever, but like getting people introduced to the game, this is, these should be your flagship courses for the associations, like, you know, whether it be yeah, first tee type program. Exactly. Yes. And, and a lot of them do. So there is the respect that they are doing that now, you know, where's the dollar going to go further with respect to, do we put a, teaching facility in these urban courses or are we going to be putting is the dollar going to go further out in suburbia and that's something that is well above my pay grade and i have no clue you know what that would look like but i mean it like you were saying too it's the you get the emotion into it with 
I would like my community to have something like this. I would like my kids to grow up on a place like this. Yeah. You know, and you've got almost, you've got an equality and an equal access issue there too. Now that I'm, I'm listening to you kind of flesh this out, you know, the there's no delicate way to say this. The the guys in the suburbs are more likely to have access to the game elsewhere. You know, with yes. a, a private course operator or a, a newer course as opposed to maybe the older parts of town where kids or people that didn't come up in golf maybe don't have the exposure. My big pet peeve is I worry a lot of parks and rec department focus 90% of the resources on the parks and very little on the recreation side. That's a, a local beef. Um, but I think that's pretty uh, – I've seen that several places, so it's, it's probably not just Lexington. <laughs> I'm the youth in this uh, this industry, so to speak. And uh, let me be the first to say, too, there is a slew of talent, a slew of talented architects coming up. Um, and hopefully I have a nice career of it, but, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think there's, there's a, there's a, a lot of guys that make me comfortable saying that golf will be in good hands for the next generation here, here. Um, I've, I've seen a little bit of that. I, I have reason, my own reasons for hope. Um, now you mentioned that you are chained to your desk. Mostly give me a little bit of, <laughs> of what, you know, we've talked a, a lot about the industry, um, but you, it, if I'm correct, if I'm perceiving things right, you've carved out kind of a little niche niche for yourself. Um, almost the guy behind the guy is what it sounds like doing. I joke that I am the Q branch of the 007. Uh, I love that. Yes, like that's great. Tell me, tell me, tell everybody what that means. So in the James Bond movies, there's always the double O agents. So James Bond, double O seven, there's always what used to be old white haired guys that, uh, you know, give him the exploding pen or have the, the flame throwing license plates or, you know, the, uh, this, this, uh, this feature films new technology. Right. Um, and it was, it was always kind of just these, dorky scientific guys that just like i think i always think of the i don't know it's this the skyfall movie where it's the young guy and they sit down in the uh, art museum yes yeah, and like james bond goes yeah. yeah and james bond goes you still have spots i'm like yeah that could be me like i'm still <laughs> the young guy a little bit and then two it's uh like I think the line is somebody's got to pull the trigger. Like that's why there's these guys out in the field, and I'm just the guy behind my computer, kind of giving these guys the tools to. Which, you know, that's kind of my my place in the industry right now. It's uh, I haven't I haven't pulled any solo jobs. Um, haven't really tried too hard to pull solo jobs. There've been a couple perspective things that have come across my my desk that um, hopefully if I if I talk to you this time next year. Uh, Things will have happened, but no, I, uh, typical day for me is, um, a lot of mapping, uh, design work on the computer, a lot of artistic work in uh, Photoshop and by the hand and just giving these architects, contractors, designers, what they need to provide their clients, uh, who can be, you know, small municipal courses to really, really high end, uh, country clubs, um, 
the best product that they can. And in the meantime, I am soaking up every bit of institutional knowledge that I can. It's, uh, it, it, it really is. It's, it, it is transformed into such a blessing for me. I, and I am so thankful every day that I'm doing what I'm doing. Cause it was, um, I, <laughs> so I quit my job full benefits. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Two weeks before the whole country shut down because of COVID. <laughs> so <laughs> my wife's looking at me like, are you sure this is uh-huh. okay? And I said, I know this is okay. Like, I'm going to make this okay. So I, I basically set out with a two solid clients. Like, <laughs> what am I doing here? But uh, I, I set out with two clients and that in the past year has grown and grown and have worked on some really cool stuff and met really cool people and learned from phenomenal brains. You're letting the guys with their name on the, the shingle be out in glad hand. You know, that that's that's a big value. You know, that's a I work yeah. for I work for a really, really big real estate brokerage. We've got a huge, huge in office staff that does basically everything. I bring them a stack of papers or actually now it's all online and I they do they upload, they pick the right photos, they do all that. I'm out glad handing networking, you know, doing doing that doing the sales stuff and that I couldn't do it at a there are places in town I couldn't work and do that. It would be too much manual labor for me. So I I completely understand what you're doing. Um, that's great. I like the Q branch though. I, I love that analogy. <laughs> If I can if I can help you out by freeing you up a little bit so you can go get more jobs that you're that you want to do, then I'm successful. So that's that's kind of like you make yourself indispensable. That's the plan. Right. I mean that's like so it fortunately this year's gone very well. There have been uh a couple of really good projects that I have um played good roles in. So the, the, the new Lido course up in Wisconsin, I was fortunate enough to, uh, be tagged in on that. I mean, that, that whole project is phenomenal top to bottom. I mean, you have, uh, Mr. Doug leading the charge with yeah. the architecture and trying to bring that through Obviously Mr. Kaiser and, and, the uh, Michael and Chris leading that thing. I mean, it's great leadership down. And then you've got, um, that's, that's with, uh, Craig Haltom, who's leading the uh, construction side of it. So I've been working through him, but doing um, a lot of the grading exercises and earthwork and uh, kind of, the, again, the the nitty gritty that nobody's going to see in the end, but needed to get done. And uh, I mean, come on, recreating a freaking CV McDonald course on your computer is ridiculous. A <laughs> uh, little golf club or country, I think it was a golf club. Uh was a course built in the 19 teens or 1920s on Long Island, New York, and was top three in the U.S. as far as ratings go. Just phenomenal piece of property that was engineered beyond belief at that time. I mean, like, I think stuff, the, the elevations were brought out of the water to create this golf course. Like, and at the time was an engineering feat. So really creative people doing really great stuff. It, it went away in the 40s and 50s. It, it you know, went the way of the dodo bird and closed. And kind of it's, it's been uh, this talked about 
mystery like oh man i you know wish we could have seen it back in the heyday now you have an owner up at sand valley with uh the kaisers who are trying to bring it back i mean trying to rebuild this course i mean honest to god to the square inch i mean it's it, it is unbelievable how meticulous these guys are with trying to recreate this thing to be as authentic as possible based on old photographs so the guy that collected all these old photographs actually built a video game model of the 1920s version of the Lido course i like unbelievable amount of detail this i can't imagine how many hours thousands tens of thousands of hours took to create this thing i mean and then there is this guy who lives in Wisconsin Rapids, literally down the street from Sand Valley, created this proprietary software that pulled the video game into my language of a contour map. So wow. he just just so happens to be down the road from Sand Valley. On, like, on soil that is as malleable as anything in the world, right? Absolutely. It is, it is an old red pine plantation, or jack pine, I can't remember which one. Maybe both. Uh, so basically, it it is built on these glaciated dunes in the central Wisconsin region, and have since been just plantation lined for lumber for probably hundreds of years now, maybe hundred years. And along with creating these phenomenal golf courses up there, they're restoring it back to its the, the dunes land. I mean, it's 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 going to be a, a taking the pine out and okay. That's yeah. So all of this, all the plantation pine. Have these people have these people seen lumber prices lately? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, there is plenty of lumber in that neighborhood up there. Uh, I mean, it's you know, there's there's a price on everything, and it's uh, I'm not going to cut down a tree just to cut it down, but there's on golf courses, man. There's there's a time and place for tree management, but anyway, these plantation pines are. It's a, it's non-native to that particular parcel of property, and they're restoring it to its natural state along with building these world-class golf courses. So we rebuild this golf course. I mean, Mr. Doak is leading the charge with how to go about doing it and how we're shifting it because, again, back to the lawsuits thing, yeah. um, if the Alito were built today uh, verbatim to the 1920s course, uh, would not be the safest safest environment in the world because you had yeah no I, I actually read something just this afternoon I think on social media somewhere about why Passio Tempo why the front nine is different like you can't get back the seventh day to ninth hole because they were they were like 500 feet had three fairways and so and, yeah. and someone someone actually did get killed uh, from a oh no shot. kidding so that's that's why that course had to change um but yeah, it's yeah, it's a very the, the Lido project. Is, it's very very cool. I, you know, and one of the things I had um, actually when I, I saw that you were working on that, is thinking, you know, that there's so few places you can try to do that. Um, everything is on sand right now. You know, all the good destination that whole yeah. the abandoned yep. the abandoned theory of build the great golf course and the golf tragics like me will come and find you eventually and you can charge a premium for it absolutely you know it i'm waiting there's something you know we've got a, one project here in kentucky that gives me hope that maybe you can also do it on some you can build interesting golf on non-sandy soil i don't know if you're and familiar. that would be another one of our uh 
young architects that should two of be, them as a matter of fact two of them yes absolutely don't don't yeah. hey, just because he's got my hairstyle <laughs> i hey i'm not <laughs> come on no i i i've enjoyed getting to know those guys a little bit on the park mammoth project um i can't wait i'll be the pied piper for them I'll, I'll be trying to to lead Excellent. caravans down there because i grew up in bowling green which is about oh, thirty gotcha. miles south yeah. of there. So it's a, a little. Kentucky doesn't get a lot of cool projects, and that's a cool project. That is that's a, and it's just it's so good for the industry to see new stuff coming out, and especially for the state of Kentucky. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, close to Nash, always, close to yeah. Nash, halfway between Louisville and Nashville, adjacent to a national park. Um, How cool is that? It's one of my great frustrations of where I live is that we don't have – there are no hidden pockets of sand in Kentucky. That You've got limestone. Yeah. You've got carts topography. <laughs> you, <laughs> you've, got some, you've got some good red clay down on the, the Penny Ryle region. Um, you've got which, you know, good, good which proportions. Which let me tell you, ain't draining anywhere near as good <laughs> as that sand up in Wisconsin or in the, in the Pine Hills of uh, North Carolina behind you. Yeah, that's, that's right. I feel like seeing that and seeing some of those courses down in, in North Carolina, that sand is such a – you can – it's the Play-Doh of, of of surfaces. You can make of it what you want, whereas we've got so much rock. And like you say, things that don't drain, <laughs> we've got that. That's why we've got so many rivers and lakes and creeks and streams. Absolutely. And it's it's a cost thing too. I mean if think, think about building a new course and think of all the – drainage you have to run all the basins you have to put in kentucky and in ohio i mean there's a fraction of that cost yeah. if you're going to the sand hills or if you're going up to areas with huge sand deposits i mean it's it is a win-win-win man <laughs> if you can find sand and build golf on it whew, yeah i'm 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 hoping for that i'm whatever the next technological revolution is that makes that you can use you know, heavy clay loam on top of rock, and you can still build interesting golf on it. So I'm not going to hold my breath, <laughs> but a boy can dream. Don't take away my dream, Scott. That's right. I'm not going to do it. There was no way Scott could have been prepared for the array of disparate topics and questions that I threw at him. So I'm indebted to him for humoring me as long as he did. He's a great sport. I think it's fascinating that he's carved out a niche as basically a freelance senior design associate, offering a variety of services to architects and designers and construction managers who, in turn, don't have to carry the financial burden of carrying a full-time associate in-house. I'm thrilled for him that he's off to a good start with his concept at Feature Golf Consulting and wish him nothing but the best of luck, obviously. And who knows? His turn with a project where it's his name on the top line, it's his ideas being built and shaped in the field, might appear sooner rather than later. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. Head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review for the show. Each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for this podcast, Jordan Spieth gets one step closer to actually being back. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard here today. If you didn't like it, I'm sorry I can't do anything about it now, but I We'll try to do better next time, I promise. And I hope you will join me here next time on the Blind Shots Podcast. Until then, stay safe, be smart. Remember, it'll be golf season soon enough. 
So stick with your training routine, do decide to go for it, and take dead aim. So when I was at when I was at UK, he had a farm in Paris, and I went out to go visit him just to talk shop. He winds up giving me these old Harry Roundtree prints, like of like Scottish courses that I've got hanging in my living room right now. 